Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of some of the tastiest morsels from this week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy and I lead Economist Radio. On the menu this week, Florida's war on Zika, how Zalando became a shoe-in for online fashion and why, despite what humans think, the world is getting better. But first, Uber World was our cover line this week. In just seven years, Uber has become the world's most valuable startup, worth about $70 billion. The ride-hailing company has disrupted a rather stationary transport industry and left a few disgruntled drivers in its wake. But this isn't the end of the road for Uber, as our cover leader explained. Its app can summon a car in moments in more than 425 cities around the world, to the fury of taxi drivers everywhere. But Uber's ambitions go further than just antagonising cabbies. Using self-driving vehicles, it wants to make ride-hailing so cheap and convenient that people forego car ownership altogether. Uber may be stealing a march on its rivals, but they're certainly chasing. Technology firms including Apple, Google and Tesla are investing heavily in autonomous vehicles. From Ford to Volvo, incumbent carmakers are racing to catch up. An epic struggle looms. And these giants are battling it out on a road leading to a whole new world of transportation. It will transform daily life as profoundly as cars did in the 20th century, reinventing transport and reshaping cities while also dramatically reducing road deaths and pollution. As boundaries between public and private transport are blurred, things could get a lot easier for us. Get it right and public transport networks will be extended to cover the last mile that takes people right to their doorsteps. You can read more about Uber's disruptive journey in our briefing this week. With the global transport industry evolving into something more efficient, we flipped to our Middle East and Africa section, where there was an example of travel not running quite so smoothly. Hajj is a pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia, which all Muslims seek to undergo at least once in their lives. Yet, as the article explained, regardless of the amount of zeal, getting there from Guinea is not so easy. Pilgrims jostle outside the Islamic centre in Conakry. A stressed-looking official barks at them to queue in single file. Rain pours down the sides of a dilapidated portico. They have travelled from far and wide to apply for travel to Mecca. Guinea has been allotted 7,200 places this year by the Saudi authorities. Some pilgrims have been saving all their lives for this opportunity. All are anxious that their papers are processed in time. And demand is unusually high this year. Pilgrims from Guinea were banned from taking part in the Hajj for two years because of the Ebola virus, which killed more than 2,500 of their compatriots. Saudi Arabia lifted the ban only at the end of June, so officials have had little time to prepare. Yet amidst the struggles, the pilgrims find hope in their piety. When asked about the pre-Hajj chaos, the Vice Minister of Religious Affairs... Karamo Diawara said, It has not been easy, but by the grace of God we are overcoming the difficulties. It is a common refrain in Guinea. 
As Kenyans wait to reach religious fulfillment, we head over to America, where one state is locked in another eternal struggle. The fight here is with a tiny yet pervasive menace, mosquitoes. You might think that a simple thwack with a good book might be enough to solve the problem, but in Florida, it's all but a military operation. We headed into combat with some gung-ho mosquito busters. Helicopters and fleets of trucks are used to nix larvae and kill insects on the wing. Traps baited with dry ice help to monitor them. The weapons in this war on terror aren't all inanimate, however. Flocks of sentinel chickens, on which some mosquitoes like to munch, are maintained at strategic locations. Then there are mosquito fish, bug-eyed relatives of the guppy, that are deployed in barrels and fountains. These brave soldiers, voluntary and not, form a new front line against a rather infamous brand of mosquito, Aedes aegypti, one of the species that carries the Zika virus. And no war, of course, could be complete without a smattering of political bravado. Amid an epidemic of hyperactive credit-seeking and partisan blame, everyone criticises Congress for failing to pass emergency funding before its summer recess. But the real warriors are those with boots on the ground. As Rob Kruger of the Pinellas Squad recounts, one form of surveillance involves standing in a buzzy spot and seeing how many mosquitoes land on him in a minute. You end up with a lot of mosquito bites, he says. Well, who would have thought it? I'm certainly not going to question the way people work, yet increasing technological advances mean that many may have to change anyway. And while tech evangelists hail the innovative blessings coming our way, many also worry about increasing automation, driving up unemployment and depressing wages. On our Money Talks podcast this week, our free exchange columnist Ryan Avent dug into the dystopian elements of digital revolution. Where the, the kind of pessimism creeps in is in the process of getting from point A to point B. You have to reorganize society so that everyone can enjoy these benefits from growth. You have to come up with new institutions, educational institutions, social safety nets, things of that nature to make sure that everyone is benefiting. And that process of coming up with that new social structure is a very contentious one. It involves lots of nasty political battles. And so I think that's the thing that I, we, we need to be worried about is, is how are we going to survive the transition? And you can hear Money Talks, our weekly show about finance, economics and business news, each Tuesday. Leaving that hint of gloom, we head into the bright lights of the fashion industry in our business section. An article there pointed the spotlight at one of Europe's most interesting technology companies, Zalando, which sells shoes and threads, and an awful lot of them. The firm's founders, David Schneider and Robert Gentz, started by selling flip-flops online from their Berlin flat in 2008. Last year, Zalando shipped 55 million orders, over 100 per minute, from three such warehouses. Their success began from realising that clothes had been left all over the place. They found that Europe's market for shoes and clothing was fragmented, inefficient and offline. Soon, they were backed by Germany's Zamwehr brothers, whose habit of imitating American online businesses earned them a reputation as the copycat kings of Europe. Indeed, some Silicon Valley-esque working practices may have been borrowed. It encourages its employees to abandon hierarchy and structure for what it calls radical agility. Which, coincidentally, sort of rhymes with anarchy. It has a 1,350-strong and rapidly growing technology team. Among its other assets are its software, 
which it built itself. And it's keen on the hottest fashion in business, big data. Through data mining, it can spot the trendsetters among its customers and stock up on what they buy. But that's enough about my shoe cupboard, much mocked by my colleagues at The Economist. As trendsetters and globetrotters, we're indeed making our mark on the planet, so much so that some scientists have now granted us our own era. In our science and technology show, Babbage, we discuss the evidence presented for us now being in the Anthropocene, the age of the human. Tim Cross, our science correspondent, surveyed the evidence. You can take the massive increase in carbon or methane in the atmosphere. You can take the appearance of things like you know, large amounts of plutonium in the soil, in people's bones. You can take the appearance of novel sort of what they call technofossils. So these are things like rocks with plastic components in them, large amounts of elemental aluminium in the soil from, that we've mined from the earth. We've got built so many dams that the amount of sediment reaching the sea has dropped by about 20%. River deltas all over the world are shrinking. There's been a massive boost in species migration, you know, thanks to people transporting animals around by ships. And the more that people look, the more they find. Well, we certainly seem to be making ourselves more comfortable here, but are we getting any happier? We finish with a taste of our books and art section, where we reviewed a new work exploring the state of the world. Humans are a pessimistic bunch, it found, but though we may not think it, life has been improving in many ways. Humans are a gloomy species. Indeed, people are predisposed to think that things are worse than they really are. This is because they rely not on data, but on how easy it is to recall an example. And bad things are more memorable. And the world's media might be guilty of occasionally adding just a little fuel to that fire. Famines, earthquakes and beheadings all make gripping headlines. 40 million planes landed safely last year does not. Unfortunately true, yet according to Johan Norberg, a Swedish economic historian and author of a book named, rather positively, Progress, life is in fact getting better. Not only have people grown much more prosperous, they also enjoy better health than even rich folk did in the past. This is due partly to galloping progress in medical science. And while we're getting healthier, our thirst for violence is on the wane too. Evidence that the past was more brutal than the present can be gleaned not only from data, but also from cultural clues. For example, nursery rhymes are 11 times more violent than television programmes aired before 9pm in Britain, one study found. So there's our trigger warning on Jack and Jill. But it's the spread of information which is truly enriching our lives, the author believes. The main reason why things tend to get better is that knowledge is cumulative and easily shared. And there's no need to look anywhere else for that but on our shows. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our tasting menu this week. You can give us your criticisms or just your sheer gratitude via email to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And don't forget to rate our podcast too on iTunes. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.